in 2 Corinthians 5, the opening part of the chapter. For we, it's a chapter, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, a tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Oh, thank you. Um, and in fact, we groan in this one, longing to put on our house from heaven, since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we who are in this tent groan burdened as we are because we do not want to be unclothed but clothed so that mortality may be swallowed up by life and the one who prepared for us this very thing is God who gave us the spirit as a down payment therefore though we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body we are away from the Lord for we walk by faith not by sight yet we are confident and satisfied to be out of the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our our aim to be pleasing to him. And then um, the statement about the judgment seat of Christ, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Uh, The point, of course, in this passage is... The role of death in the Christian life, um, Rick already, didn't you refer to Philippians 1? Yes, you did. Um, that kind of chased everything out of my mind suddenly. Um, but um, uh, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Um, what I don't understand is, is exactly what Paul's talking about in kind of the middle of this passage is he saying that there is a kind of intermediate body that we're going to have waiting for the resurrection body or just what I was uh, talking to one of my colleagues at school this week he uh, we we had um, classes back to back uh, I had class from 8 to 12 and he had class from 1:30 to 530 <clears throat> in the same classroom and um, we passed and I said how you doing I forget how he answered it um, something like like um, well I'm dead and I, I'm alive and I, I I'm not looking forward to the alternative and I said well heaven's not so bad he said yeah but I don't want to be unclothed so he's a theology prof <laughs> uh, and uh, I now understand his interpretation of second Corinthians 5 1 to 10 uh, do we have an intermediate body that's coming I don't know. Uh, do we have a? Or do we have an unclothed existence between death and the resurrection? I don't know. I don't know what all this means. Part of our problem is, and especially for a Bible teacher, one part of the problem is you have to talk about what you don't really understand. <laughs> you know what I mean? At times, you're just kind of left with questions more than answers. But the one thing that we can say is. The hope that we have of the resurrection, and um, there is um, there is so much importance in that. Turn turn to one more passage of how can we even talk about this without going to First Corinthians fifteen. Um, but in First um, Corinthians fifteen, 
the resurrection chapter. It's all about the resurrection until verse 58, and then he abandons the resurrection, isn't talking about the resurrection anymore at all. Amen? Because this is a verse. And since it's a different verse than all the others, then it has this entirely different, unrelated subject. Amen? Uh, no, Kathy, I'm sorry. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek, and when you do that, you often bite your tongue. And so... <laughs> Uh, the point is that um, verse 58 is, is a sort of application of the whole chapter. Wherefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Uh, the losses of life, the pains of life, the struggles of life... Um, in the context of 1 Corinthians 15, the potential of serving the Lord for long periods of time without seeing any result. I want you to remember that this is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul has just come through 15 chapters in which he's dealing with a, a bunch of people who, as 2 Corinthians will make clear, are on the verge of rejecting everything Paul's been saying. Um, so, after having, imp- after having imparted the gospel to them, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, after having imparted the gospel to them, and so effective was the work of the, minister- work of the Spirit in the church that, as Paul can say, you come behind in no spiritual gift. Yet, they are, they are characterized Chapters 1 to 4, with divisiveness, breaking up the body of Christ. In chapter 5, by a man living with his father's wife. In chapter 6, people who are going to court against one another. Before unbelieving judges, airing all the sin of the church before the non-believers. Kind of like Facebook. Uh, no, I'm serious. Uh, there, there, there's just been a lot of pain on Facebook recently. Um, and some of the people are engaging in, in fornication with prostitutes in chapter 6. Chapter 7, they're not sure what to do about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, they're, um, they're, there are some of the people who are going to ten- idle temples and engaging in banquets in honor of the gods and they have they haven't understood that christian liberty doesn't mean uh, your freedom to do everything or anything it means doing what is helpful to others chapter 11 there are women who are praying and prophesying surely none of you are prophesying i trust but not at stonebriar community church but without covering their heads and people are violating the unity of the church at the Lord's Supper in chapter 11 Um, some of them getting drunk at the Lord's Supper chapter 12, 13 and 14 people are using spiritual gifts to aggrandize themselves and build their own reputation instead of using them for what they were purposed to do namely to build up the body of Christ They, they are trying to use what is the fruit of the Spirit, brothers and sisters? What is it? 
And the first of them is love. And if these are fruit of this, if this is the fruit of the spirit, and if these are gifts of the spirit, they're trying to practice the gifts of the spirit without the the fruit of the spirit. In chapter fifteen, they're denying the resurrection, or at least bordering on it. You would think, after Paul spent something like a year and a half at Corinth, a fairly long period, he, he spent. I think I can't remember how long he was in Ephesus, two to three years, as I recall. Uh, but that may be the longest of the ministries that he had in all of the churches that he worked in. After, but, but Corinth would come in a close second. Yes? And after all that effort, this is the fruit of his ministry? And what then is the point of it all? Yes? Um, one, of the, one of the bad things about being in in vocational ministry is you often can't see the effects of your work. Um, being, a, being a counselor, you can't always see the effects of your work. You don't know whether you've done any good or any bad with people. I've, I've thought, I used to enjoy watching uh, MASH when it was on TV. I can't, can't watch it very much anymore. We don't have cable or satellite at this point. Uh, but um, Father Mulcahy uh, felt, I, as I would have felt in that situation, frustrated. Am I doing any good? The doctors can see when a soldier who's come in wounded um, either recovers or, or dies. Yes? But, but how do you heal a soul? And how do you see that? Are you with me here? So 1 Corinthians 15, 58, my, my mentor in Memphis quoted this how many times? Good night. What? Every it seemed like every week. Uh, um, and it took me years to figure out what was going on. <clears throat> I was still struggling with it when I first began to understand what it meant. Um, at the seminary, my first five years were horrible. I would have left on the at the at the drop of a hat if I could have done it. Uh, and First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight kept coming back to me, and I finally realized one of the things that this verse means is um, a lot of life seems useless and futile. A lot of life seems just repeating the same old thing every day. What, am I making any progress at all? Uh, and then things like this happen. How do you respond to it? Uh, how do you even think about it? And the, and, and the final word that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians on, the, on the, the resurrection of Jesus is that the resurrection of Jesus means that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I, I don't altogether know why. I don't altogether know how. I have some guesses at it. Um, a verse that we've quoted over and over in our studies together, Philippians 2, and, and especially verses 12 and 13, but 13 is the key one. Verse 12, though, is the Methodist verse, and verse 13 is the Presbyterian verse. So verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For the one who is performing in you the willing and the doing of his good pleasure is God. Um, 
And if, if I've understood that verse 13, there are at least five things that are true in light of it. I never obey. I'm never faithful to the Lord unless God has first given me the desire to do it. Then secondly, he gives me the ability to do it. And then third, he does it in me. And fourth, derived from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. God gives the results. And fifth, God rewards me. You cannot fail when you're faithful. God always, see, see it's already God's work in you to be faithful, to, to hold fast to the Lord, no matter the cost, no matter how frustrated you are, no matter how useless things seem. Um, I'm, I'm reading the, the Robe, Lloyd Douglas's novel, The Robe. I'm uh, 40-some ver- pages, verses, 40-some verses from the end, 40-some <laughs> pages from the end, and I'm not, I'm not wanting to go to the end because I know the end, yes? Uh, those of you who are, older, who are older have seen the movie. Um, you know the end. And I'm coming right to the climax um, of the book. The characters that are the main characters, Marcellus and Demetrius. Demetrius is Marcellus' slave, who is completely different from, from who was that that played the slave in the robe? Um, can't recall now. It, it was completely rewritten for the movie. Um, that, those are the two main characters. And Diana, who is in love with Marcellus, is, um, is on the second level, second tier, main character. Uh, they're, they're going to get back together, but they're going to be martyred. And you're, you're given such a high opinion of both, of all three of the characters, you don't want to see them martyred. And you think... Victor Mature. Pardon? Victor, Victor Mature. Mature, that's right. Um, thank you. Google is a wonderful thing. I didn't get to get it. I could see his face. <laughs> yeah, I could see his face too, but um, uh, you think, is it, should, should you take such people who have such qualities in their lives, people who have so much potential, and hand them over to death for the sake of Jesus? <laughs> and when I say it that way, I, well, yes. Of course. No. Yes. <laughs> Are you with me here? My flesh says no. My heart says yes. So, what do we do with death? Um, you face it with the sure knowledge of the resurrection. Death makes so much of life futile. It just seems awfully futile. When my favorite professor died. He was in his 80s or so when he died. It was around 2004. I can't remember the exact year of his death. Um, but all of us, and, and the, um, the chapel was full. Uh, it, it was full to, to uh, with standing room only left. Um, and all of us who were his students wanted at least five, maybe six books from him. He, he always said that there were four books in the New Testament you ought to 
you ought to study and spend all the time reading on that you can get. They are John, Romans, Hebrews, and Revelation. Those four. If you have those four down, you pretty much have the thought of the New Testament. I don't know whether that's right or not, but that was his view. So we wanted commentaries on John, Romans, um, Hebrews, and Revelation. He also was working on a systematic theology when he died. Uh, but in his old age, he was forgetting the things that he had taught and was, t- and was writing things that he didn't even agree with. And fifth, sixth, we wanted a book on the use of the Old Testament and the New because that was an area of his particular research and, and uh, study. He got me started on that process. And I sat there thinking, but he wrote none of them. He told um, Stanley Toussaint one time, I can write or I can pastor. I choose to pastor. Um, and I thought, yeah, well, that's, that's probably sound, but I wanted those five, six books from him. He did put out a short book on the use of the Old Testament and the New, but it isn't, it isn't adequate. Even by his standards, it's not adequate, particularly by his standards. I had a course with him on that. I knew where he stood. And I thought, what good is all his learning? What good is all that life spent in academia? What, what's achieved? What's accomplished? And I thought, nothing. But... If he had written the books, I have a friend in Memphis who's a pastor, and his office is a very long office. It's relatively narrow for for the length of it. And one full, long wall is bookshelf, and it's full of books, as you might guess. And he said to me one time, we were good friends, he said to me one time, people come in here and they say, have you read all those books? And he says, I'll say, some of them twice. Now, what's the implication of that? Most of them, not even once. <laughs> uh, so if, if S. Lewis Johnson, Jr. had written those six books, all six would have been on my shelf. The one that he did write is on my shelf. I have not read it. But they would be in the library... But I'm old enough to have predated computers for library management. And uh, in the back, there were little cards that were put in a pocket. And you, when I was working on my dissertation, I'd check out a book and I'd look at the, at the card. And some of them, the last time it was checked, this was in the 1980s. Some of them, the last time it was checked out was in the 1940s. Wow. <laughs> uh, um, so what good would it have been to write six books and I thought all that learning is gone it's all gone except what he has given to us as his students but you see all of that discussion is not factoring in the importance of the resurrection his many years of service uh, 60 years of service are not in vain Because there is no faithfulness that God does not reward. Are you with me here? And so I don't have to see the results today. I don't have to see 
change in people today. I'd love to, and sometimes God gives me that opportunity, but frequently you just you just labor through and, and go on. You don't know what the effect is going to be or what God is going to do and when. The one thing you can hold on to, finally, is um, the resurrection of Jesus. We had a man in class several months ago, some of you will remember this, I was talking about the importance of the resurrection as an evidence of the validity of the claims of Jesus, and he said, well, that's foolish. You can't, do, you, do you remember this, some of you? Uh, and um, uh, the, the reality is that the resurrection is the most securely established historical fact in the ancient world. It's, it's attested by enemies and friends alike, it's attested by non-believers as well as believers. <laughs> Multiple sources. This is rare. There are very few other sources that give as much testimony for an ancient event as the resurrection. So if the resurrection is true, that makes every service, every act of faithfulness, every moment of confidence in the Lord, that makes every event of obedience one which will bear fruit for eternity. Uh, Jesus said, I have come that you might bear fruit and that your fruit might remain. Yes? And then we're faced with this. But still only the one answer remains. Um, The resurrection makes everything meaningful. Um, I... I, I hate to repeat this, we've done this relatively recently, but <laughs> uh, when I joined this, the, the faculty at the seminary, I said, if you're looking for somebody who writes and who's, who's, who is um, uh, opening up new avenues of thought, you got the wrong man. I'm not your guy. I'm not a creative thinker. I, I, I take what others have said that I find consistent with scripture and, and find ways to communicate it to people but that's I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be a creative scholar uh, but my favorite professor said when you call someone creative just remember you are lying because only God is creative but <laughs> having said that um, uh, they said to me no don't worry about it for tenure we don't require everything to fall on Publication. We have several different criteria. We evaluate you by all of them, not just one. Uh, then there arose a pharaoh who knew not Joseph. <laughs> and, uh, um, he made the test, the touchstone for uh, getting tenure publication. And I thought, There's, I, I, I don't think I write well. I don't think I have anything to say that somebody else hasn't said. What's the point of writing it again? Uh, And I just felt that God had given me a divine bait and switch. Um, So I was pretty angry at the Lord, and we talked about this on many occasions. I I wanted to leave desperately, and I, I thought that God, I knew better, I know better, but I felt that God had taken me to the seminary to, to fail. Um, that was 2000 to 2005. In 2005, I came up for, uh, for my first review of tenure. 
they at the seminary they bring you in in the fifth year to say here's where you are, here's where you need to be, this is what you need to do. Um, so I, I went in for my um, interview with the tenure committee. It was at 4.30 in the afternoon. I had a 5.15 class that day right across the hall. And uh, it was a, a Monday, as I recall. And um, um, I, we went through the process, whatever the process was. And I left the thing thinking, well, I wonder what the effect of this is going to be. So I went in and started my class. It was at 5.15, and you always pray at the beginning of class. And I was praying. That room has, has uh, four uh, sets of doors, two that are to my, to my back, right and left. Um, sure, God, glad I got that right. Not for you, but it got right for me, right and left. Uh, Molly, you and I have the same problem here. <laughs> uh, and there's a, a little landing and steps that you come down because the room is built kind of like theater seating in a, in a sense. And um, so somebody came in while I was praying and stood on the, on the platform and then started down the steps. And I thought, he'll go to his seat or something. Came over and stood by me. And I thought, that's really unusual. I looked up while I was finishing up the prayer, and it was the chairman of the tenure committee. What's he doing here? <laughs> I'm fired. I'm pardon. Did you start praying again? Yeah. <laughs> oh Lord, change this man's heart. <laughs> uh, and I, I thought that, that's what, what's going to happen here. So I finished the prayer and I looked up and he bent over and he said, "I couldn't wait. You got it." He said later to me, he said, I'm, I'm the one who always gives the presents to the children before Christmas because I can't stand <laughs> waiting. <laughs> uh, but, but I asked later, how, how did you solve the problem of my publication? Well, I happened just by the, by the providence of God to have with me the Holman Christian Standard Bible this morning. And at about 1997, a friend from Nashville called. He was an editor with uh, Broadman Holman Publicate, uh, a Press. They were starting a new translation, and he wanted to know if I would be interested in taking part. And I've always wanted to be involved in Bible translation, and, and this was not exactly what I had in mind, but hey, I get to do it. It's going to be neat. So I did Psalms 40, 51, 52 to 101 and um, started in... I don't remember, it was probably 1998, started, and we did four psalms um, every, or five psalms every three months, or four months, I guess it was, five psalms every four months. So you did 15 psalms a, a, a year. And I didn't finish that work until after I came to the seminary. In fact, our daughter got married, paid for by the Holman Christian Standard Bible. <laughs> uh, but... Um, uh, in 2005, so that was about probably 2002 when I finished my work. In 2005, they counted that translation work as the um, as my scholarly publication. The Lord knew where He was taking me. I didn't. I couldn't imagine what the, the Lord was going to do about this problem of publication. I pitched a book or two to publishers. And they were initially interested, but didn't, it didn't go anywhere. 
Okay? And I thought, Lord, you brought me here. I'm going to get fired because I, I didn't publish. What am I going to do? But the Lord had known what he was doing um, eight years earlier and was already preparing the way. In fact, from eternity past, my doctrine requires that. And he was preparing all the way through. And all those, all those weeks when I would walk to the chapel from my office, it was a, it was a place where the students didn't go very much. Uh, so I could walk and not be interrupted. And I would, in tears, plead with God, let me leave here. I, I, I know you didn't bring me here to, to destroy me, but it feels like you have. Why won't you let me leave? And in all that time, God was saying, my dear son, if you only knew, but I can't show you yet, I've got a surprise waiting for you. You're going to see, and it's going to be marvelous. Are you with me here? So be steadfast in the face of death, in the face of apparent uselessness, in the face of futility, in the face of meaninglessness. Be steadfast unmovable always abounding in the work of the Lord because you don't because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord does this make sense to you um, Rachel thank you for sharing that with us today thank you for being here and letting us participate with you in your enormous grief um, let me pray Father, we don't understand very much of what you do. You know how little and how weak our understanding is. We don't really know. It's in times like this that we begin to be aware. We don't really understand. We don't get it. But you understand our weakness. Um, I'm so encouraged that your omnipotent son came and felt what humanity is really like. He's the only human that's ever lived who really understood our weakness. He really understands the weakness of our minds. He who is omniscient had to live as a baby and uh, to be able to express himself only as a baby for that time. And then growing up as a two-year-old and a five-year-old and a ten-year-old, he had to express himself in ways that were appropriate for a perfect, sinless child, but for a child nonetheless, he knows the weakness of our arms, he knows the weakness of our minds. And since you understand these things, you're incredibly compassionate toward us. And when we face these ominous times, when death invades this world again, as it does every moment of every day, all over the world, but it doesn't touch my life that often. You understand our fears, our dreads, our regrets, our dashed hopes. You understand the pain. So, Father, in that, in that compassion, meet with Rachel and Stephen, sustain them, carry them through this time, let them see your goodness, 
much of it should come through the body of Christ. But there is only so much we can do. We can't be there in the dark of night when they wake up in loneliness and agony for the loss. So, Father, meet with them in those times. Um, Bear them up. Give them the sense that even this serves a purpose. We don't know it. I can't even imagine what kind of purpose you have in such situations. You, you even, Father, and this is encouraging, you even know our anger. Uh, and you enter into our anger because you, you, you had to hand your son over to the cross. Um, wrath at human sin. But what did Jesus mean for sure? What did it mean when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I know a little bit of it, but I can't even imagine all that it means. So, Father, you know all this. Let them grieve well, grieve thoroughly. Let them express their anger to you. That's really an act of faith. Let them pour it all out and find there... uh, comfort and calm and hope. Um, We don't ask you to fill the loneliness and the emptiness for the one that has passed away. But we do ask you to soften the edges of the pain so it's more bearable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's only 20 to 12. I feel kind of inappropriate to go on with Romans 15 right now. So let's just go ahead and and, uh, dismiss and see you next week, Lord willing.